Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together... We can make a difference. Do you know what happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning? It croaks. But um <laughs> In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 56, X-Men. If you are new to this podcast, welcome. This is the podcast which talks about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. That's what I'm here for, that's what I like to do. And I hope that everyone who's listening is continuing to be safe and well uh, during these very, very strange times. And whether this is your first episode of Verbal Diorama or your 56th, Uh, As always, thank you for joining me on this weird, wacky podcasting journey. Um, And also thank you for the very positive response to Moana, which was the previous episode. Um, Moana was a genuine joy to research and do an episode on. Um, I make it a bit of a hard and fast rule on this podcast to not cover anything that I don't have a particular love for or a like for, even if it's a love for the premise rather than the execution because admittedly I have featured some stuff that's maybe not so great, but I think there's always greatness behind it. Um, But Moana, uh, despite having a few issues, um, it has to be said, was just simply an absolute joy to talk about and discuss and revisit and listen to. And and it's just a wonderful, wonderful piece of work. So um, I would highly recommend you watch Moana if you've never seen Moana. Um, And again, despite some issues, which I will kind of talk about, X-Men is that for me too. Um, I grew up with X-Men. X-Men was really my first introduction to Marvel. It's what made me a Marvel fan, so to speak. I wouldn't say I'm the biggest Marvel fan in the world. Like I don't buy all the comics and I don't go to all the cons and, and all of that sort of stuff. But I've always had an affinity to Marvel and I've always had an affinity to the X-Men. 
Um, and the main main reason for that, I guess, is because I've always felt a bit different. As a kid, I kind of felt at home with the X-Men. Um, and as I said, this is a podcast on the history and legacy of movies. And the legacy of X-Men is unlike anything else. Because without X-Men, cinema today would undoubtedly look very different. And so, like all trailers in the year 2000... Let's go and have a listen to the very techno-infused trailer for X-Men, which is very, very heavy on the music um, because a lot of it was very visual. Um, it's a very weird trailer, I'm not going to lie. But um, it got me <laughs> It got me interested because I remember going to the cinema. I don't even remember the film that I went to see at the cinema, but I saw the trailer for X-Men and I was just beside myself with joy that an X-Men live-action movie was finally coming. Um so, yeah, I think this is still the trailer that kind of got me more excited than any other trailer that I've ever watched in my life. So, uh, <laughs> and it's a really terrible trailer, uh, but I was considerably younger. So, um, so anyway, here's the trailer for X-Men. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now seeing the beginnings of another stage of human evolution. In every human being, there's not many people that will understand people like us. There exists the genetic code. You'll be safe here. What kind of place is this? You're not the only one with gifts. For mutation. The truth is, mutants are very real. And they are among us. We must know who they are, and above all, what they can do. A change is coming. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? Those we fear. Magneto believes that a war is brewing between mutants and the rest of humanity. Will be all that can save us. If no one is equipped to oppose them, humanity's days could be over. You're a mutant. The whole world out there is full of people that hate and fear you, and you're wasting your time trying to protect them. You sure you're on the right side? I have made the first move. That is all they know. He could wipe out everyone in New York City. Logan, help us. Fight with us. I'll take care of you. We are the future, not them. Extraordinary abilities in a world filled with fear, prejudice, and intolerance, the next link in the chain of human evolution. Mutants are facing a future in which they have to choose sides. Telepath Professor Charles Xavier struggles to achieve a peaceful coexistence between the two factions of mutant kind, hoping that the gifted students of his institute will use their powers for good, while his old friend, antagonist, and Holocaust survivor Eric Lencher, going by the alias Magneto, prepares for war against the humans he sees as evil. 
Professor Xavier and his team of mutant heroes, including new recruit Logan, a self-healing adamantium skeletal cage fighter, find themselves caught in the middle of a violent confrontation, one that will either stop or usher in a new era in the history of Homo Superior, as Magneto plans to use an innocent teenage mutant to prove to humans that mutants are a threat. So, the cast for this movie... Um, I feel like it's one of those movies where you don't really need to go through the cast because everyone kind of knows, but I'll go through them anyway. You have Patrick Stewart as Professor Charles Xavier, Hugh Jackman as Logan, aka Wolverine, Ian McKellen as Eric Lenscher, aka Magneto, Halle Berry as Aurora Monroe, aka Storm, Famke Janssen as Jean Grey, James Marsden as Scott Summers, aka Cyclops, Bruce Davison as Senator Robert Kelly, Rebecca Romaine Stamos as Raven Darkholm, a.k.a. Mystique. Ray Park as Mortimer Toynbee, a.k.a. Toad. Tyler Maine as Victor Creed, a.k.a. Sabretooth. And Anna Paquin as Marie Dancanto, a.k.a. Rogue. The screenplay was credited to David Hayter and the story to Tom DeSanto and Brian Singer. And it was directed by Brian Singer. Let's just go through a brief history of X-Men. I don't really want to dwell too much on the history of X-Men, but obviously... X-Men was created by the legendary Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. The characters first appeared in the X-Men number one in September 1963. They are mutants. They are born with an X gene which manifests superhuman abilities during puberty. The X-Men are the good guys fighting for peace and equality between humans and mutants in a world where mutants are feared, hated and abused. The Brotherhood of Mutants is the opposing viewpoint, also a band of mutants, but who see humanity as a threat and that mutants are the superior beings, believing aggression and force are the only way to achieve equality. Stanley based the story of Professor Xavier and Magneto on real-life civil rights activists Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, both men attempting to achieve the same goal of civil rights for black people, but with opposing philosophies and ideologies. Martin Luther King believing in peaceful, non-violent coexistence and Malcolm X in separatism and black nationalism. Despite having different points of view to the method, their goal was essentially the same and they had the best interests of the black community at heart. Their polarised opinions and approaches were evident, but towards the end of their respective lives, each grew closer to the other's view. Uh, Malcolm X um, ended up being assassinated in 1965 by three black men and Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968 by a white man. While the X-Men were based on the civil rights movement, any marginalised person or community can find solace and understanding within the X-Men and this speaks to its ongoing appeal. The founding members of the X-Men in the X-Men number one were Angel, Beast, Cyclops, Iceman and Marvel Girl aka Jean Grey with Professor Charles Xavier at the helm and the Brotherhood consisted of Magneto, Mastermind, Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch who are both canonically the son and daughter of Magneto and Toad. So the first experience I had with the X-Men was the 1992 Fox animated series which I used to run home from school to catch. Uh, It was the animated series which led me to hunt out X-Men comics um, and when I was a kid in a small town in the Midlands we didn't really have comic book shops uh, we had a news agent that occasionally stocked X-Men comics very rarely um, but the Fox animated series the lineup of Cyclops, Wolverine, Rogue, Storm, Beast, 
Gambit, Jubilee, Jean Grey, Professor X and Morph, who was created for the series, was always the team I wanted to see in in a movie. And believe me, I dreamed of a movie. Uh, I even had a dream cast list written up when I was a kid. And I've been thinking about it. And to be honest, I don't remember most of my suggestions on my dream cast list. But I did really want Angela Bassett as Storm and Rene Russo as Jean. And it turns out my Angela Bassett wish wasn't too far off the mark. But we'll come to that. Um, And obviously, like I said, uh, all I wanted was a live action X-Men feature film. And my wish really did come true because boy, did we get films. Um, We'd eventually end up with, so in 2000, this movie, X-Men, which was the first. In 2003, X-Men 2, aka X2. In 2006, X-Men The Last Stand. In 2009, X-Men Origins Wolverine. In 2011, X-Men First Class. In 2013, The Wolverine. In 2014, X-Men Days of Future Past. In 2016, Deadpool. Again, in 2016, X-Men Apocalypse. In 2017, Logan. In 2018, Deadpool 2. 2019, Dark Phoenix. And this year, 2020, The New Mutants, um, which has been long in development hell and will finally be released next month as I'm recording this after years of delays Um, but for our story about X-Men we need to start at the beginning so an X-Men screenplay was written back in 1984 by Marvel Comics writers and chief editors Jerry Conway and Roy Thomas this was back when Orion Pictures held the option for film rights but Orion after a period of great success in the early 80s were really struggling financially and in 1985 had a terrible year with the majority of their releases making less than $10 million at the box office in the US. Not even box office successes like Dances with Wolves and The Silence of the Lambs could reverse Orion's struggling finances. Orion ended up selling productions like The Addams Family to try to raise cash and in 1991 Orion filed for bankruptcy. With Orion out of the picture, discussions then moved to Carol Co. and Stan Lee and Chris Claremont piqued the interest of James Cameron, who just set up Lightstorm Entertainment, and he expressed an interest in producing an X-Men feature film with his then-wife, Catherine Bigelow. That's a nice little obligatory Keanu reference there with Point Break, but I digress, too direct. Bigelow wrote a story treatment which included none other than the late Bob Hoskins as Wolverine and aforementioned Angela Bassett as Storm, but this fell through when James Cameron noticed Spider-Man and decided that he wanted to produce, direct and write a Spider-Man movie instead, which obviously also never happened. But they were very confident that it would hit screens regardless of what happened to Carol Co. But that's a story for a Spider-Man episode. Carol Co. then also went bankrupt and the rights for X-Men reverted back to Marvel. And I'm going to discuss cinematic rights in a little bit too. Marvel mooted selling the rights to Columbia in 1992 alongside a live-action Black Panther movie starring Wesley Snipes, who would obviously go on to become Blade in 1998. But LL Cool J was actually trying to get get Blade made in 1992 for himself. Uh, There were actually a lot of Marvel projects attempting to get off the ground in 1992, So there was Elektra, Ghost Rider, Luke Cage, Doctor Strange, uh, that was Wes Craven of all people, Hulk, Fantastic Four, they all had productions attempting to get off the ground that year. At the same time, Fox Kids were launching an animated X-Men series, also in 1992. That was produced by Avi Arad, 
Uh, X-Men the Animated Series was a massive success, which impressed 20th Century Fox. And as development executive Scott Nimurfro was a big fan, he persuaded producer Lauren Shuler Donner to acquire the film rights from Marvel, which was also struggling financially at that point and famously optioned all its most popular characters to other film studios to generate much needed cash. So Spider-Man and its affiliated characters were sold to Columbia Pictures, Hulk to Universal and Fox bought X-Men, as well as Fantastic Four and Daredevil. But they also sold minor characters like Iron Man to New Line Cinema and Thor to Columbia. Those rights, including those of Hulk, were returned to Marvel in 2005 and 2006, respectively. And we know what Marvel did with those. Lauren Shuler Donner who is credited on all of the X-Men movies for Fox, read character biographies um, to try and affiliate herself with these characters. And she started with Logan and became hooked on him as a person. Mainly the fact that he'd been abused, he'd been mistreated, and his constant healing meant that he couldn't die for a long time. And also his unrequited love for Jean Grey. Bill Mechanic, the CEO of Fox Film Entertainment, had sold his childhood X-Men comic collection to fund his college education. And with comic book movies, not really the done thing outside of Superman in the 70s and 80s and Batman in the 90s, they thought it was the right time to bring the X-Men to the big screen. Andrew Kevin Walker was hired in 1994 to write Fox's script for X-Men, which consisted of Professor Xavier recruiting Wolverine into the X-Men, the team-up of which would consist of Cyclops, Jean, Iceman, Beast and Angel, that very same X-Men number one comic lineup, the Brotherhood of Mutants would consist of Magneto, Sabretooth, Toad, Juggernaut and the Blob, and they would be attempting to take over New York with Sentinels, and the conflict within the X-Men would come from a bitter rivalry between Wolverine and team leader Cyclops. Later, Caligridis, John Logan, James Seamus and Joss Whedon were hired for rewrites, but this screenplay was rejected for being too pop culture heavy and quick-witted. Only two lines of Whedon's dialogue would remain in the final movie, quite famous ones at that. Michael Chabon pitched amendments in 1996, which introduced Jubilee and Nightcrawler to the team and wouldn't feature any primary villains until a proposed second movie. Nightcrawler and Beast would be removed and instead feature in X-Men 2. Angel would feature in X-Men The Last Stand. Iceman would be relegated to a smaller role as a teenage mutant. And Jubilee, while the audience standing in the animated show, would instead become Rogue. And her powers change from Rogue's ability of strength, flight, and let's be honest, the femme fatale character of the group, to become more amalgamated with Jubilee, with probably a little bit of Kitty Pride as well. Both of whom, Jubilee and Kitty Pride, would both cameo in the movie. And this change to Rogue, as much as I hated it at the time, hashtag not my Rogue, was done because of these pesky film rights. Because Fox had the rights to the X-Men, but those rights came with caveats, as rights to comic book characters always do. And Rogue achieved her powers originally from an altercation with Ms. Marvel, aka Carol Danvers. You'll remember her from Captain Marvel. And Marvel retained the rights to Ms. Marvel and retained the rights to Ms. Marvel's powers. This meant Rogue's ability to absorb the powers of others was retained, but her abilities that were sourced from Ms. Marvel were not. Rogue was then merged with Jubilee to become a teenager. Fox originally considered Brett Ratner as director. He would go on to direct The Last Stand and also offered directorial duties to Robert Rodriguez, who declined. Also declined were Paul W.S. Anderson, who wanted to make Event Horizon. Brian Singer was looking for a science fiction movie to direct and Fox offered him Alien Resurrection. 
but producer Tom DeSanto instead counter-offered X-Men. By December 1996, Singer was confirmed as director before going off to direct Apt Pupil, and Ed Solomon, another great little obligatory Keanu reference there, was hired to write the script in April 1997. A Christmas 1998 release date was agreed for X-Men, as was a $60 million budget. But wait, this movie came out in 2000. Yes, Uh, and there's a reason why there was a bit of a delay. So because it became quickly apparent that Fox was having real trouble understanding the X-Men as a core group of characters. Chris Claremont, on his return to Marvel, sent Fox a four-page memo explaining the themes of the X-Men, the concepts of the team, and most importantly, what made the X-Men different to other superhero teams. In late 1998, Singer and DeSanto sent a treatment to Fox, which took the comparisons between Professor X and Magneto to Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Unlike all the other scripts... They understood the feelings of prejudice, alienation, humanity's fear of the unknown and intolerance and worked it into X-Men's script. Grounding the X-Men in reality became the single most important thing about this movie. Christopher McQuarrie was also brought in for additional rewrites once Fox realised their $75 million budget would increase by $5 million, taking into account the additions of Beast, Nightcrawler and the famous Danger Room. Elements of Beast were taken away and and morphed into Jean Grey instead. And David Hayter, who was the director's assistant at the time, was enlisted for additional rewrites because he had extensive knowledge of the comic books and was suggesting changes to Singer, who eventually just gave him the torch to rewrite the scenes completely. In the end, Macquarie and Solomon both removed their names from the finished product. And that was because of the tortuous process that they had to go through. And this is why only David Hayter's credit for the screenplay remains. And he claims 55% of the finished film was his work. Other insiders claim the majority of the screenplay was Macquarie and Solomon's work. I want to just take a brief interlude from talking about X-Men to talk about the director. And I want to make it very clear, crystal clear, that I'm not featuring X-Men to support, ignore or appear to condone the vile allegations made towards Brian Singer of sexual misconduct from men who were, at the time, minors. Um, These are incredibly disgusting and serious allegations, and I'd be remiss as a podcast talking about X-Men to not speak about it, or worse, ignore the fact that Singer is an alleged abhorrent human being. I mentioned back in my episode on Serenity about separating the art from the artist, And I'd want to take a moment to clarify because I did get a listener email about those comments um, and that listener highlighted the power dynamic between abuser and abusee. Um, So I want to make it completely clear. I'm not featuring X-Men to highlight Singer at all, ever. I'm featuring X-Men for the 99% of perfectly decent, hardworking cast and crew who also worked to make X-Men what it is. Um, when I mention separating the art from the artist, it's never in a way to condone or ignore the allegations surrounding someone like Brian Singer, but to highlight the movie itself as the legacy creating feature it was, and in many respects still is. Um, I do feel, however, that there is a need to address the allegations in this episode. Not doing so feels like looking at the movie with blissful ignorance. Um, as I said, I'm not featuring the movie of him. 
I'm doing it because it's a movie I grew up with and I have a hell of a lot of respect for. I have zero respect for Brian Singer as an individual. Um, I have to mention him purely because he's the credited director. Um, I'm actually trying not to mention him uh, as much as I probably would. Um, And in many ways, he has affected the legacy of X-Men by taking the story of the good guys and actually becoming the worst version of the bad guy. Um, X-Men's bad guys, specifically Magneto, have shades of grey and nuances. Um, you can still understand Magneto's point of view. Um, in, in that respect, he's never truly the bad guy, um, especially more so in later films in the franchise. Um, and you can't say that about Brian Singer. Reports of his drug use on the set of X-Men and the explosive tantrums and mood swings in, to be fair, not just X-Men, but other productions that I've read that he's been involved with. He just doesn't seem like a very nice person. And I wanted to make it very clear the reasons why I'm featuring X-Men uh, and nothing to do with him. But similarly, I can't ignore that he was involved in this movie. Um, it's just a shame that this movie and other movies that he's been involved with are now tarnished. Okay, back onto X-Men, um, because I don't want to dwell on that person anymore. Um, Casting-wise, I think pretty much everyone knows that Hugh Jackman wasn't first choice for Wolverine, um, and that Russell Crowe turned the role down before recommending his friend Hugh Jackman. Uh, Hugh Jackman was performing in the West End in Oklahoma at the time. Musician Glenn Danzig was invited to audition, but declined. Dougray Scott was cast as Wolverine, but backed out after scheduling conflicts arose with Mission Impossible 2. Hugh Jackman auditioned without even knowing what a Wolverine was. He actually studied wolves in preparation because he thought it was a wolf. Um, And he was cast three weeks into production, which is why his physique changes throughout the movie as he was continually working out during filming and is more buff in the scenes that were filmed later. Hugh Jackman actually shares a Guinness World Record with Patrick Stewart for having the longest career as a live action superhero, which is just lovely. <laughs> uh, other actors considered for Wolverine include Gary Sinise, Mel Gibson, Aaron Eckhart, Jean Claude Van Damme, of all people, Vigo Mortensen, Edward Norton, as well as aforementioned Bob Hoskins, bless him. Jerry Ryan was considered for Mystique, which. Uh, the role would ultimately go to model Rebecca Romaine Stamos, who, despite only having one line in the movie, seriously, makes an impression just with her physical performance and the fact that young men at the time were obsessed with the fact that she was practically naked. Uh, she uh, wore 110 silicone prosthetics protecting her modesty and she spent six hours every day in makeup. She couldn't even eat some foods just in case it affected the stickiness of the prosthetics on her skin. And all of that just for one line of dialogue. So thank you, Rebecca Romaine Stamos, (laughs) for doing what you did in this movie. Um, That is dedication. Michael Jackson actively campaigned for the role of Professor X before Patrick Stewart was approached, and he admittedly knew nothing about the character. He's obviously had a long-time friendship with Ian McKellen for many years. Uh, Ian McKellen responded to the gay allegory of mutants, having at that time been out as a proud gay man for 10 years. And it was the relationship between Charles and Eric that became the linchpin for the franchise going forward. Uh, Ian McKellen was cast as Magneto after Christopher Lee and Terence Stamp were both rejected. I mentioned Angela Bassett. She was the one that I wanted for Storm when I was a kid. But when it came to casting, Angela Bassett was too expensive. Janet Jackson and Mariah Carey were also considered before Halle Berry took the role. 
Natalie Portman was cast as Rogue before dropping out. Drew Barrymore, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Katie Holmes, Christina Ricci and Alicia Silverstone were all considered before Anna Paquin, who retains an and credit uh, in the movie. And that's presumably because she is the second youngest Oscar winner in history. Uh, she is still the second youngest Oscar winner in history, but she also was at the time. She won an Oscar when she was 11 years old for the piano um, and she took the role of Rogue. Former Bond girl Famke Janssen beat out Maria Bello, Lucy Lawless, Renee O'Connor, Helen Hunt and Selma Blair for the role of Jean Grey, as well as Peter Wilson, who dropped out due to commitments to the TV show La Femme Nikita. Charlize Theron actually also turned down that role too. So... Casting-wise, for this movie, there was a lot of big names involved. Um, But there was also a lot of kind of up-and-coming names as well. And having this cast of established fan favourites, for example, Patrick Stewart, he'd been the fan favourite for Professor X for years and years. I can't remember whether he was my fan favourite because I really can't remember. But um, the fans loved the fact that Patrick Stewart was involved. um, And also all of these new faces because they wanted the production to appeal to not only the core fans, but also the wider general public. They didn't want to alienate anyone, as that goes against the very ethos of what X-Men actually stands for. In many places, because of this want to appeal to the fans and everyone else, um, the script really does feel very choppy in this movie and very exposition-laden. It always feels very out of place, Professor Xavier is introducing Cyclops and Storm to Wolverine and he says something like, oh, this is Scott, also known as Cyclops. And it's just not how people speak in real life. Um, But essentially, the decision made in this movie was to focus a story on Wolverine and Rogue. They are two outsiders drawn together by their shared experience of being a mutant. And they are the eyes of the audience. Filming took place in Toronto and Ontario from September 1999 to March 2000. And just so you really appreciate what actually went on in the background of this movie, filming took place to March 2000. The film released in June 2000. So just stew on that for a little bit. Um, Basically, the post-production schedule was just ridiculously hectic. The choice to not replicate the colourful costumes from the comic books was chosen to ground the movie more in reality because black leather was kind of in the see the matrix and even stan lee and chris claremont agreed with the decision despite fan complaints the line what would you prefer yellow spandex was added late in production to quash these complaints and make light of the decision the idea was not only reality based but aesthetically mutants would want to blend into the background and use the clothing for protection They never wanted to make a silly, ineffective point of story. They wanted a dramatic action movie and the costumes had to reflect that drama. It's worth noting that later movies in the series would retain the original costumes because by that point, comic accurate was something the fans wanted. And in the year 2000, when (laughs) comic book movies were not really commonplace, nowadays, comic book movies are everywhere. So authenticity is what the viewer wants nowadays but back then they they just wanted to get bums on seats for x-men and the best way to do that was to try and make it as bland as possible i guess 
It was almost expected at the time that X-Men would be a very special effects driven movie with computer generated effects becoming more mainstream in cinema. Singer visited the sets of Titanic and Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace to see how practical and digital effects could be blended because filming for X-Men started without any digital effects company on board at all. And it wasn't until December 1999, so that was seven months before release, that companies Digital Domain, Cinesite, Kleiser Walzak, Construction Company, Hammerhead Production and Matt World Digital, Core and Pop were all hired. The special effects work would go on to be shortlisted for an Academy Award nomination, but ultimately it never got nominated. Essentially, the decision was made to use as many practical effects as possible and to use the computer-generated effects sparingly. For Senator Kelly's transformation, every frame of his mutation into water took 39 hours of rendering time. Most of Wolverine's claws were real injection-moulded plastic blades, not the real metal blades that the production originally wanted because health and safety people, um, and Jackman and his stunt doubles had hundreds of pairs of these plastic blades. And while some of the CG used in this film is a little dated and wonky now, as it would be for a 20-year-old film, the shot of Wolverine's blades coming through his knuckle slowly is still a really great shot. Obviously, as I said, X-Men came out in the year 2000, and the previous years had seen other comic book or superhero movies, like The Rocketeer, The Crow, The Mask... Tim Burton's Batman movies, Joel Schumacher's more, shall we say, vibrant and silly Batman movies, um, Marvel's first step into movie making in Blade in 1998, as well as previous episode 23's Mystery Men, all came out to varying degrees of success, as well as lesser known attempts like Spawn, Darkman, The Phantom, The Shadow and Tank Girl. There was a real stigma associated with comic book movies and X-Men differed from not only that real world setting as opposed to somewhere made up like Gotham or Metropolis, but from treating its characters like real people or as real as they could do in a movie that's essentially the best part of an hour and 45 minutes long. The production team ultimately wanted characters that people could associate with and root for rather than just see them as superpowered beings with no connection to the real world. Someone like Superman is a great character, but ultimately it's very hard to feel an association with Superman because he's Superman. But you don't get that with the X-Men. You feel a connection to how they feel, despite a lot of the characters in this movie getting quite short-shifted um, with regards to characterization and story because they're such a big team it's very difficult to focus on quite a lot of the characters um the themes of ostracization and being different can be related to on many levels you don't have to be a mutant to understand how it might feel to be a mutant and while joel schumacher's batman movies are hilariously funny mostly for the wrong reasons x-men started its cinematic offering with the holocaust and a young Eric Lensch's separation from his parents at a concentration camp, outlining the very worst of humanity, while also humanising Eric and where his beliefs have come from. To go through the Holocaust, being persecuted for being Jewish, and then becoming a mutant and being persecuted for that as well, you can fully understand his hatred for humans. That doesn't mean you have to agree with his methods, but Eric has suffered more than most mutants, and this makes him a character you ultimately can empathise with, despite his honest attempt to kill Rogue uh, to achieve the aim of making all of Ellis Island mutants. 
Without X-Men, we wouldn't have the cinema that we have. X-Men gave us a superhero team-up movie, but I can't ignore the fact that Blade came first in the Marvel canon. Whilst Blade is probably not as legacy or franchise-creating as X-Men, Blade was synonymous with not only being the first Marvel superhero film, but also a black superhero film. Deeply rooted in the occult and vampire mythology, Blade himself as a dampier crossed the threshold between humanity and vampire, which cancelled out its comic book roots somewhat as vampires have always been cinematically more interesting and long-standing than general comic book superheroes. Blade cost less to make, still turned a small profit, but despite Blade coming before X-Men, X-Men are more well-known and without the success of X-Men and the selling of those cinematic rights, Marvel wouldn't have had its bit players to create the MCU, which obviously started with Iron Man in 2008. Right, it is time for a little feature that I like to do called the obligatory Keanu reference. And uh, I've already kind of semi done an obligatory Keanu reference uh, twice already um, because it's very, very easy to link Keanu Reeves to this movie. So the obligatory Keanu reference is essentially me linking a movie to Keanu Reeves. Um, sometimes it's really tough sometimes it's like x-men and it's really easy um, because one of the people that they originally wanted to play wolverine was keanu reeves Um, i didn't mention him up at the top because i wanted to save it for the obligatory keanu reference but interestingly although he was originally wanted back in 1999 uh, when they were casting for wolverine um, fans are actually still wanting him to play Wolverine. Um, now that the rights for X-Men have transferred back to Marvel Studios since the acquisition of Fox, um, fans are actually saying, get Keanu as Wolverine. I would be 100% down with that, by the way. Um, but interestingly, they also kind of want him as a bad guy. Uh, obviously, he can't play both. But on the X-Men side, they're really keen on him to play Wolverine. And on the bad guy side, Mr. Sinister... Now, I remember Mr. Sinister from the animated show and he was a very interesting villain, very complex. Um, He's been teased a lot, actually. Um, There have been at least one end credit sequence and I can't remember which movie it was uh, where they teased Mr. Sinister. Um, And obviously they never followed through with Mr. Sinister uh, in the Fox X-Men franchise. But I think Keanu would be a very interesting Mr. Sinister. Um, So I'm going to put it out there. Keanu for Mr. Sinister, please. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. (laughs) So the music for X-Men, it's not a very well-known score to be perfectly honest. Um, And the legendary John Williams was actually approached to score the movie, but scheduling conflicts forced him to turn it down. Uh, John Ottman was then approached, but when the movie moved up from December to July 2000, uh, he was actually already committed to direct Urban Legends Final Cut, which meant that he couldn't actually do the music. Michael Kamen was eventually hired instead, And he was actually asked not to use any contemporary songs on the soundtrack so as not to date the movie. As Cayman was familiar with the X-Men, he tried to replicate a serious movie about humanity's capacity to discriminate and show prejudice, but Lawrence Shula Donner was not happy. 
she was completely dissatisfied with his attempt to score the movie and she actually forced him to redo the entire score. X-Men, as I mentioned a bit further up in the episode, had its release date shifted six months. It was originally scheduled to be released in December 2000 um, and it was actually Steven Spielberg who caused that problem. Uh, So Steven Spielberg's Minority Report had its release date moved back to accommodate Spielberg's filming of AI artificial intelligence. And that left a gap in the summer 2000 schedule, which Fox needed to fill. Um, And as I said, originally scheduled for a December 2000 release, it ended up switching release dates with Minority Report and therefore just completely erasing six months off his production schedule. Um, And it ended up being released in July 2000. Uh, The fact that they got a cohesive movie done six months sooner than they actually planned to is just an incredible feat. I do not know how they've done that. Yes, I'll admit, some of the CG is not the greatest looking in the world. And that is probably because of this six-month bump up the schedule. But the fact that X-Men is as good as it is, yes, it's not perfect. Yes, it does have problems. But the fact that it is as good as it is, with that six-month jump up the schedule, is quite phenomenal, actually. As I said, it opened in the US on the 14th of July 2000. It opened at number one in the US box office, and it had no real competition that week either. So in the first week, it ended up making $54 million. It dropped to number two the second week, uh, as that was when What Lies Beneath was released. X-Men actually ended up becoming the ninth highest grossing movie of 2000 uh, with a worldwide total of $296.3 million. Um, What Lies Beneath was actually just below it at number 10. And that figure, $296.3 million, actually looks quite small when you compare it to today's superhero movies and what they get. I mean, we're talking today of if a movie doesn't cross the billion dollars, it's not classed as a hit. Um... But the fact that it was a relatively small budget movie of only $75 million, the fact that it made almost $300 million and the fact it was obviously open six months early was just phenomenal, really. It solidified X-Men as not only a financial success, but also essentially cemented it as creating superhero cinema as we know it. Because as we know, a few years after this in 2003, we got X-Men 2. And then the ball just kept rolling and rolling and rolling. Ironically, Dugray Scott's role as Sean Ambrose in Mission Impossible 2 actually netted him the highest grossing release of 2000. So despite the fact that Dugray Scott never actually became Wolverine, he did end up in the highest grossing release of 2000. So 2000 was not a bad year for Dugray Scott. Um, I can't say that he's had the same career as Hugh Jackman, but... Anyway, um, (laughs) maybe I shouldn't go into that. X-Men was considered a massive risk. There were no other comic book adaptations in the top 10 that year. And Fox, because of this risk, were extremely involved in the day-to-day production. So much more than at any other point of any superhero movie ever made. Um, They nitpicked everything they believed viewers would be confused by it they didn't understand why characters had two names each why the powers weren't the same between mutants and literally everything in the production was routinely scrutinized by fox 
who didn't seem to understand the concept at all. Now, this is not the first time that I've mentioned on this podcast about Fox not understanding the concept of something that they are essentially producing. Um, See also my episode on Serenity, um, because Fox really screwed that one up. (laughs) But Fox, although they did not understand this concept, they were like those really annoying managers who kind of hover over you and ask you what you're doing every five minutes. That was the production on X-Men. Again, how X-Men came to be completely cohesive after everything that it had been through is a miracle. It's a, it's a genuine miracle. This movie should have been complete trash. It genuinely should have. Everything that happened in the production, everything that Fox were doing, bringing the release date up by six months, hovering over every single decision, questioning everything that they were doing, this movie should be trash. The fact that it's not trash is a miracle. So the fact that Fox didn't understand pretty much anything about the movie... Um, was actually one of the main reasons why a young production assistant on the set of X-Men ended up becoming one of the most influential and powerful figures in superhero cinema. And that is one Mr. Kevin Feige. Kevin Feige was the production assistant for Lauren Shuler Donner and would remind people what each character's power was, what their backstory was, where they'd come from. And this would stand him in good stead for his career going forward with Marvel. He actually impressed Avi Arad so much with his knowledge of the whole Marvel universe that Arad hired him as second-in-command at Marvel Studios that very same year. And Kevin Feige was actually named president of Marvel Studios only seven years later. It's quite phenomenal, actually. I think we forget that where someone like Kevin Feige has come from And I think we think of Kevin Feige as this kind of untouchable cinematic being. But ultimately, he started out as just a production assistant. He was the nerdy production assistant for Lawrence Shuna Donna, who told people what they needed to know about these characters. He helped make X-Men as good as it is. And are there things I'd change about this movie? Sure. The director, for one. But... I would have loved to see a more comic accurate rogue. Genuinely, I would have loved more Storm because she's arguably one of the most powerful mutants in the whole lineup. Uh, And she was relegated to a few lines. And even though it's one of the most notoriously bad lines, um, when you've got Halle Berry in your movie, you want to utilise her. I would have loved to have seen Gambit. And we've still not had a truly great on-screen Gambit. Although Taylor Kitsch did try. uh, And Channing Tatum also tried to get Fox's Gambit movie out of development hell for years. I would love to see a proper, proper Gambit. I would love to see a proper romance storyline between Rogue and Gambit. Because they were always my favourite couple in the cartoon. Because... She was so much more powerful than he was. And he was just completely, like, just adored her. And she was actually a bit more indifferent to him. But they just had a really kind of nice back and forth. It was very matched, a very matched relationship. Um, And I would love to see that. Um, And I I hope that Kevin Feige is listening. Please give us a MCU X-Men movie with comic book accurate Rogue and Gambit together, please. That is what I would want to see. Um, I want to see me some Raging Cajun. (laughs) Anyway, back to X-Men. 
this is very much Wolverine's movie. Um, and going back to things that I change, obviously Cyclops is relegated because of the fact it's Wolverine's movie. Um, but to be honest, I'm not terribly upset about that because Hugh Jackman really is everything great about this movie. His Wolverine might not be comic accurate and that caused a lot of problems for the fans. The fact that he was essentially a foot taller than comic book Wolverine. But Hugh Jackman really gives this role everything. And I seriously doubt we'd still be talking about Wolverine in modern pop culture lexicon if Dougray Scott had played him. I'm really sorry, Dougray Scott, but it's true. The critics really liked X-Men. It wasn't universal praise. Uh, it retains an 81% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, and overall, it got favourable reviews. Um, the vast majority of people thought it was okay. And it is, you know, it's surpassed by a few sequels. It's not surpassed by all sequels, but it's surpassed by a few. And with hindsight, there are quite a few issues with it, but it's still so much fun to watch. Watching X-Men again has, it makes me want to genuinely I'm not going to but it genuinely makes me want to do an X-Men season <laughs> and just kind of start obviously with X-Men and I can't do it because I'm already scheduled in till like March of next year now but I really want to do just a bunch of X-Men movies because revisiting these movies is a joy genuinely despite all of the things that I feel um and all of the issues surrounding these productions now um, it just makes me feel this affinity to X-Men all over again. Um, and speaking of sequels, obviously X-Men 2, uh, aka X2 or X-Men United, wherever, whatever you call it, that came in 2003 and it vastly improved in every regard. Um, genuinely, it's one of the, my favourite superhero movies ever. I am definitely planning to cover it. Obviously not next episode, unfortunately, but it's definitely going to be on my schedule only because I felt like I had to tackle X-Men before X-Men 2. I have to be honest, I don't generally care because I've already done X-Men Dark Phoenix and that was the last one that came out last year and I've already done Logan. Um, and that, one, that one came out in 2017. So I can't say that I'm, you know, 100%, oh, it has to start at the start and go to the end. But I really, really do want to talk about X-Men 2 because that opening scene of X-Men 2 is still... I think, one of the greatest opening scenes of all time. But anyway, I digress. Um, obviously, with the X-Men franchise, many other movies followed. Um, obviously, we had another sequel after X-Men 2. We had spin-offs. We had prequels, which changed the whole timeline and even incorporated the older new casts in the sublime, I have to say, Days of Future Past, which gets kudos from me just for having the one-two punch of Stuart and McKellen against McAvoy and Fassbender. Um... And McAvoy and Fassbender, their relationship just adds an additional layer of complexity to the relationship between Charles and Eric, for me. Um, you're never going to get as good as Stuart and McKellen, but McAvoy and Fassbender are still so great. Um, not so much in the, uh, the later movies, but definitely in First Class and Days of Future Past. They are chef's kiss. They are perfect. Right, over to social media thoughts, because I am running very late on this episode. Uh, <laughs> I knew this was going to be a big one, guys, but we'll go through social media thoughts. So over to Twitter, 
at Derek Jones 198 this is Derek from The Midnight Myth, said... While not every aspect holds up, this movie helped define the comic book genre. The cast is phenomenal and embraces X-Men as a story about those being left behind by a prejudiced majority. I still love it today. At Cap Understands said, A film that had so many hurdles to jump and managed most of them. I hate, hate, hate the suits though. (laughs) Of course, everyone hates the suits. Andy at Geek Salad Radio said, The X-Men franchise has an odd distinction that the movies are either amazing or terrible. There's very little in the middle, and that's the first X-Men. The story of Charles and Eric should have been the central plot instead of getting to spend most of the time with Logan. As a fan of the comics since the early 80s, I wasn't disappointed with the movie, but I was happy that subsequent movies were vastly improved. First Class should have honestly kicked off the series. At Movie Reviews In said, I was the hugest X-Men fan growing up, still got all my comics and cards. So when this was announced, I was off the chain excited. It didn't quite meet my ridiculously high standards, but it took one hell of a run at them. Four out of five, a total game changer. I would absolutely agree with that, actually, because I was the hugest X-Men fan too. Um, And it didn't meet my ridiculously high standards either, but it did take one hell of a run. So yeah, I kind of agree with that completely. At Sean Geek Podcast said, X-Men was the follow-up movie after Blade made the world take notice of Marvel in film. And despite everything going against it from studio meddling, budget cuts, release date changes, somehow this film scored the biggest home run for a Marvel property up to that point. Without X-Men, we would not have the MCU today. We should be proud we got this film for what it accomplished. This was when the skewed perspective of nerds and geeks and weirdos changed and we could all come out of our closets and be proud of who we are. At Stuntgoat75 said, Watched it again a couple of weeks ago and it still holds up, mainly due to the great performances throughout the quality cast. The Toad Lightning Line is still really cringy though. At Beaver Does said, As a massive X-Men fan, I remember the major pull for me to watch was my nostalgia for the animated series and Sir Patrick Stewart as Professor Xavier. Also, I remember Ashmore from Animorphs too. I stayed for Jackman as Wolverine. At Dazza Loves Movies said, As a fan of the comic, I was blown away that an X-Men movie was going to be made and that they were going to try to put so many characters in both on the heroes and villains side. I think this was a really commendable effort. At Black Girls Do Stuff said, I remember seeing this as a teen in my small town with my friends that enjoyed the animated series like me. It was a blast and seeing mutants come to life on screen was amazing. It holds a special place in my heart, though I'm still haunted by Senator Kelly turning into water. As we all. At AFC Film Geek said, Being a collector of the comics was really excited when they announced this and it didn't disappoint. Everyone will say Wolverine was perfectly cast, but Patrick Stewart was born to play Professor X. Interestingly, Stuart McKellen didn't know how to play chess until this movie. At Euron Claude 9 said, This film was so awesome. For so many years, My mum tossed away my X-Men comics because they were only for boys. This film vindicated me. It was a dream come true. She couldn't take this away from me. It was mine. Also, as I was dealing with racism, I felt a kinship towards the X-Men. I felt wanted. Does that make sense? Like, I saw them rise above the hate. I could do that too. Given my country's racial atmosphere, the film is sadly still relevant. Nevertheless, the film is wonderfulness. Even now, I look back on it with nostalgia. 
at Best Film Ever Pod said, Everything we enjoy about the superhero genre as we know it, especially the MCU, is built on the foundation that is X-Men. In a franchise that often bounces between the poles of quality, the original is actually quite middle of the road and forgettable. However, its true strength is in the legacy it left behind. It proved that superhero films could look plausible, incorporate great actors and be bankable. Also, the fingerprints of the quippy Marvel lead are all over Hugh Jackman's Wolverine. X truly marked the spot. And finally, for Twitter, at NFTDD, which is Dave from Not For The Dinner Table, said, I grew up with the X-Men as my favourite comic and still love them to this day. I had high hopes for this film and on the whole it didn't disappoint. But there were definite areas where the film dropped the ball. Coming in first, the use of Storm. The character was written poorly. Oh, that toad line and was completely sidelined. I'm not sure whether the casting was also wrong, but Halle Berry didn't get a chance to shine. The story itself focuses on marginalised groups being ostracised and discriminated against and how they go about tackling that, a message that still resonates to this day and particularly this year. Then we come to Brian Singer's history. It's a shame that, again, a great film has been tarnished by accusations that have come to light since. It also raises the question, what do we do with that art? All in all, as an X-Men fan, I was pleased with the students of Xavier's first outing. I wait with bated breath to see what the MCU does with these gifted individuals. I could go on more and more, but I'll stop there. (laughs) Bless you, Dave. Thank you. Thanks for your comment. Dave's was the longest, but I know he really, really wanted to be involved. So um, moving over to Instagram at Why This Film Podcast said, I used to cite this as my absolute favourite superhero movie. Upon a recent rewatch, I was super bummed with how eh it is. But that was after a Marvel marathon. Maybe I'm spoiled from Ant-Man and Infinity War. There was nothing on Facebook this time, but thank you to everyone for your comments. I had loads of comments for X-Men, which, to be honest, I completely expected. And I expected a lot of people to kind of feel a bit meh about this movie now um, for many reasons. Obviously, the obvious reason why people might feel a little bit less enthused uh, about X-Men just generally as a series but also the fact that we have had better since. Although this was the start, we've had better X-Men movies uh, directed by better people, uh, arguably. Um, And we've also had better superhero movies just in general. And not just Marvel, uh, DC as well have dropped the ball a couple of times uh, with their movies. But Wonder Woman was great. Birds of Prey was great. And obviously the MCU really can do no wrong. So I think it's very difficult to look at a movie like X-Men nowadays. It's de- it's never going to be the greatest superhero movie ever made because that's X-Men too. But I think, Emily, at Why This Film Podcast has summed it up. I think we are spoiled uh, generally nowadays with these superhero movies. So revisiting X-Men does kind of feel a little bit meh. But knowing... Now, what you know about X-Men, hopefully you can appreciate how brilliant this movie actually is. Professor Xavier says it himself. Mutation. It is the key to our evolution. It has enabled us to evolve from a single-celled organism into the dominant species on the planet. This process is slow, normally taking thousands and thousands of years. But every few hundred millennia, evolution leaps forward. X-Men mutated the evolution of cinema from a single movie to the dominant genre in cinema. The process was slow and had a few missteps along the way, but every few years or so, evolution leapt forward. For every The Last Stand, there was an X-Men 2. For every X-Men Origins Wolverine, there was a Deadpool. For every Apocalypse, there was a First Class. For every Dark Phoenix, there was a Days of Future Past. And without this movie, we would never have Logan. 
which if you've listened to episode 19 of this podcast, you will know how much I value and treasure Logan and the contribution Logan made to superhero cinema in its own right. X-Men has its issues behind the scenes and on screen, but without it, cinema would be so very different. And for that reason, the legacy of X-Men is something incredible, masterful and unique. It's excellent, exemplary. <laughs> what are the words can I start, can I use to start with X? I don't know, but without this movie, young Kevin Feige would never have had the chance to shine. And without Kevin Feige, the MCU would not exist. So we have more to thank X-Men for than we realise. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on X-Men. If you do like this episode or any episode I've put out, by the way, I would love it if you would take a moment to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And thank you to those who have recently given me some really lovely five-star ratings and reviews. Um, It genuinely does give me a massive boost. um, And it is the best way to show that you love what I do. Uh, It's completely free. It literally takes two minutes. Um, The other thing you could do is you could tell a friend or a family member that you listen to this podcast and recommend it. That would be awesome. As I have over 50 episodes, um, I'm no longer listing them all at the end because I used to and it took me a long time. Instead, I'm going to try to recommend other similarly themed episodes that if you like this episode on X-Men, that you might also like. So if you like this episode on X-Men, you might also like episode 11 on X-Men Dark Phoenix. That was with Chin Lin from the Bingeables podcast. Episode 19 on Logan. Episode 23 on Mystery Men with Andy from Geek Salad. Episode 30 on The Incredibles. Um, Although it's not a Marvel property, it is an excellent uh, superhero team-up movie. Episode 32, uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, obviously because it's Spider-Man. And episode 38 and 39 uh, were on Hellboy and Hellboy 2 The Golden Army. Um, which were obviously comic book adaptations as well, directed by Guillermo del Toro, and really, really incredible. Um, I would recommend any of those episodes, in all honesty. Obviously, as always, give me feedback on my recommendations. Do you think I got it right? Do you think I missed anything? Let me know. The next episode is special, um, and you're actually going to be getting it sooner than normal, because normally I release episodes on a Thursday, uh, general release, uh, patrons get episodes a couple of days earlier than on the Tuesday. Um, but last year, uh, on my birthday, I put out a special episode on The Iron Giant. And this year, I wanted to do the same. And I wanted something similarly big, because it's my birthday. And there's nothing bigger in size, scale, pop culture, or just the general zeitgeist, than a movie 65 million years in the making. Um, so on Monday, the 31st of August, the Verbal Diorama Laboratory will be creating and releasing Jurassic Park. Uh, let's only hope the episode doesn't escape. Actually, no, I do want it to escape. That's the point. Anyway, (laughs) uh, you can find any of my other 55 episodes in your podcast app of choice to stream or download. You can follow me if you want to on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama. If you wish to support the show financially, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com slash verbal diorama from $2 a month. And you get access to some fab perks. As I said, you get uh, early release episodes apart from Jurassic Park, which patrons don't get early. um, And also the next episode after Jurassic Park, because that's coming out on the Thursday. So basically you'll be getting an episode the Thursday today, if if you've got this episode on release day, Thursday, 
And then a few days later, you'll get Jurassic Park. And then a few days after that, you will get the next episode after Jurassic Park. So I am doing quite a lot (laughs) over the next kind of week or so uh, for the podcast. Um, But unfortunately, because of that, because of the lead times, patrons won't get episodes 57 or 58 early. Uh, But generally, you do. And a massive thank you to the patrons of this podcast, Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike and Griff. You are all superheroes. You can email me if you wish, uh, general hellos, feedback or suggestions. My email address is verbaldiorama at gmail.com or you can get in touch on my website at verbaldiorama.com. Or, if you wish, you can pop over to filmstories.co.uk, which I write for. I write for the website, and I write for the magazine. Please show your support to the magazine, and buy a copy if you want, or you can just visit the website and click some links, uh, because they generate money. And finally, now the X-Men are back with Marvel Studios, it's inevitable that they will be back. Uh, on cinema screens so perhaps this time we will get to see a rogue versus captain marvel showdown maybe that would be awesome bye previously on x-men